1: Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could be a part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. It's not that we're contrarians or that we're, you know, not trying to get along with people. It's just, I don't know. I can only speak for myself. See, that's one of the characteristics of a wrong thinker. I won't presume to speak for everybody, but I really value being able to to own my own worldview. I don't want to have my mind controlled. I don't want to be under physical control of somebody either. But I'm very cognizant about uh, attempts to to try to shine me on and to to, uh, spin me or scare me or intimidate me into hold this position or else. Maybe you feel the same way. If you do, you are in good company. And I think you're going to find a lot of great food for thought here today. Uh, One of the things I want to share with you is a very timely piece about uh, why we need more consistency and accountability for a political class. Robert E. Wright uh, actually pulls from something that's very relevant on a lot of people's minds, and that is, you know, the code of the Mandalorians. This is the way. He says, we might do better if our politicians conducted themselves like Mandalorians. I know you think, well, aren't they kind of violent? And so They are, but at least they're upfront about who they are and what they are, and don't pretend <laughs> that they're something that they're not. I'll share that with you coming up. Also, not to stir anything, but I find the question on my mind, was it really an insurrection on January 6th. And I've seen some pretty interesting stories here that have slowly started to come to the surface in the last few weeks, the last couple of weeks particularly, that call into question that official narrative. Oh, it was an armed insurrection and they were going to overthrow the government. Um, I know that the, the media and the politicians are eager to blow this out of proportion, but I've got an accounting from Jacob Hornberger, and I think it's a pretty accurate accounting of what actually happened And it also poses the question, if that was really an insurrection on January 6th, why has no one been charged with such since then? There have been a lot of disorderly conduct charges and trespassing and so forth. Nobody's been charged with insurrection. And uh, this isn't to back you into any kind of a partisan corner. It's just to, to pose the question, is it possible that this is being milked and turned into something that it never really was? By people who could gain from the fear and the panic and the hatred that that might generate. You know, use it as an excuse to, oh, I don't know, clamp down on and remove from society your political opponents. Just hypothetically. Last but not least, we'll talk about what authentic learning looks like. You know what? As parents, you look for it in your kids. So you get pretty good at spotting, "Uh aha, I can tell my kid is actually learning. But how often do we stop and think about our own intellectual trajectory in, in what we're doing? Probably not as often as we should. But Annie Holmquist has some really solid advice on three elements of true learning. You're going to be happy when you hear what they are because you're going to recognize these are things that could be at play in any of our lives at any given time. The idea is become a lifelong learner. I want to start with a, with a little bit of good news here. And and here's the good news. So much of our public policy right now is predicated on the premise that without a lot of centralized control, we'd all be living in the Lord of the Flies pretty quickly. And then a story comes along, like the one I'm about to share with you, that will restore some of your faith in humanity. We don't need to be micromanaged. In fact, when times are really tough, sometimes people, the best kind of people, step forward. And I've got a story about this. This is out of uh, Leander, Texas. The headline says a Texas grocery store lost power and let people leave without paying. Shoppers paid it forward. Now, I'm sure you heard about what was going on in Texas over the last couple of weeks. Hannah Knowles is the author. This is uh, in, the, in the Washington Post. She says Tim Hennessy remembers a collective groan on Tuesday as the lights went out in his local grocery store in Texas. He and his wife quickly grabbed their last items and pulled up to a checkout line 20 carts deep. Around him were a couple hundred shoppers, some with only credit cards, trying to stock up during a statewide emergency. The power had been going on and off in this Austin suburb as cold weather overwhelmed the Texas grid. But no one told shoppers to put the items back if they couldn't pay cash. When Hennessy got to the cashier, he said she just waved him on, thanked him, told him to drive home safely. And the 60-year-old man said it hit us like, wow, they're just letting us walk out the door. Ahead of him, shoppers were pushing carts with piled high with diapers, milk, jumbo boxes of crackers, all free. And he began to tear up. Well, the show of kindness this week at the H-E-B grocery store in Leander, Texas, has gone viral and here's one of those bright spots in a crushing week for Americans weathering a deadly winter storm that left people scrambling for food and clean water after mass power outages. Hennessy's Facebook post about the episode exploded. Friday, an op-ed in the Houston Chronicle contrasted the generosity in Leander with authorities' failures. Why HEB comes through in a crisis when Texas government doesn't, the headline read. Hennessy attributes his post's unexpected resonance to a hunger for good news at a time when Americans are bombarded with the bad. Oh, I'd say he got that right, wouldn't you? By Tuesday, the snowstorm stumbling, uh, pummeling much of the country had left more than a dozen dead, and power outages in Texas had peaked, plunging several million homes into darkness. Hennessy told the Washington Post, The country's been through a lot this last year and a half or so, right? Since last March, I guess, really. A lot of division, a lot of stuff going on, and on top of this, in Texas here, we've got this weather. They're not ready for this. But it wasn't, ter- it wasn't all terrible, and here's the proof. He says, people are really good, and you see it in the tougher times. He was going to title his Facebook post, The America I Know, until his wife just suggested, The Heart of America. Out in the HEB parking lot on Tuesday, he could tell that other shoppers were touched, too. Carts were getting stuck in the ice and snow. Groceries were tumbling out, but people started holding onto each other's bags. Watching an elderly woman nervously struggle to get her car moving, the wheels spinning on ice. Hennessy says he and a couple other men pushed the vehicle ahead. Everybody started helping everybody. Now, Hennessy, who works in information technology, said he called H-E-B on Friday to ask if they had preferred charities. He wanted to pass the good deed on by donating whatever he would have paid for his milk, produce, and power bars. Now, H-E-B didn't respond to the Washington Post's inquiries by Friday evening, and a man who answered the phone at its Leander location said that the staff there couldn't comment. But the company confirmed Shopper's accounts on Twitter. Yes, it is a true story. It commented below pictures of Hennessy's post. Other customers were also moved, and Shelley Lasker told the Austin American statesman, That she was anxious to get supplies and in the checkout line when the power stopped, which of course took out the store's payment terminals. She still was left. She still left with staples and lunchables for her four year old son. She told the American statesman, I think they could just tell how upset people were. Now, Texas's situation was dire and it would only escalate for Hennessy, who said his home lost running water the next day. Now, he says the water's back now, but the storms have wreaked costly havoc on public infrastructure. Much of the state still under advisories to boil their water to uh, before drinking it, if they can even get it from the tap. But Tuesday afternoon at H.E.B., Hennessy said he felt hopeful and even cracked some jokes on his way out of the store. He said, I could use one right now, telling an employee who asked if he had any alcoholic drinks. Wait a minute. He said, I forgot the filet mignon. He told the staff later before heading out the door. No one told him exactly why they were doing it. But he said the message to him was clear. The mindset seemed to be, you are our customers. You probably need this stuff. Go ahead and have a nice day. Now, I don't know. What do you think? Was that an outlier? I mean, is that just is that just a one little happy story that it tries to cover up for a world full of inhumanity and sadness? I guess, you know, it depends on your point of view. I am a believer in... The idea that we tend to find what we're looking for. So if, if you're actively looking for the better angels in the people around you, I can promise you, you're going to find them. And it's very satisfying when you do. I mean, it's, it's not like you're being greedy. It's just you're, you're noticing. You're, you're noticing and appreciating the goodness in the people around you. At the same time, if you're looking for devils, if you're looking for people who are bad or looking for traits to criticize, you're going to find those too. So what really matters is, you know, what are you looking for? Why are you looking for what you're looking for? I think it's important to notice and to celebrate and and to, I think, express gratitude and pay forward wherever possible. Acts like what happened there at that Leander, Texas grocery store. I also think it's important that uh, we don't overlook the opportunities that may come our way to be that good person to be the one who's capable and willing to step up in a moment and and do the right thing even if it's the hard thing but that learns you know you, that that means learning to think with something other than just you know well let me get my calculator out here and see if we can attach an appropriate you know cost loss uh, estimate on here nonetheless somebody did the right thing and I'm happy they did I believe that uh, most people would do the right thing. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Our program is brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Yes, if you are a person who needs commercial insurance, you already understand it's complicated, gets very complicated very quickly. That is why companies like Landmark Risk Management and Insurance exist, because they have a team of skilled experts they will send to the rescue the moment you contact them. Assuming that's what you need. Yeah, you may just need some questions answered. They can help with that too. What I'm saying is uh, you wear enough hats as it is. It can get super complicated. How about uh, you lean on the people who do it for a living, who are absolute experts and looking after you. They're on your side. You can contact them by traveling to my show notes at com, and just look in the sponsor links there. You'll find direct contact information for landmark risk management and insurance. So I'm a subscriber to the American Institute for Economic Research, and you're going to hear me promote them from time to time on this show because I just get so much good information from them. Um, I get more articles in a day because they, they send it directly to my email inbox than I can can possibly you know thoroughly digest. I look over all of them and and uh, I try to pick the ones that I feel are most relevant to to share with you. But I strongly recommend you know you can bypass the middleman here and just go uh, subscribe for yourself, read them at your leisure. But these are very principled, very well documented, well thought out writers. Um, I love that they it's it's very nonpartisan, which you know makes it uh, it makes it a lot more substantive than what you find on on more partisan sites. I really appreciated the piece that I saw from Robert E. Wright that uh, is titled, This is the Way. And there's a great picture of the Mandalorian, um, you know, the, the latest Star Wars sensation. Listen to his take on this, though. Robert E. Wright says, I would like to see all candidates for elective office in the United States become Mandalorians in appearance and code. By the way, not to be confused with Manchurian candidates. He says, sure, it would be great if they could take out a dozen droids or imps without breaking a sweat, too. But maybe those candidates should serve in the military instead. What do I mean by Mandalorian in appearance and code? Well, he says, like Mandalorians, politicians should keep their masked helmets and armor on when in public. That way, voters cannot discriminate for or against them on the basis of their race or age or physique or faces. Pretty girls and boys like Gavin, or I'm sorry, like pretty boys and girls like Gavin and Christy get cut too much slack because they're easy on the eyes, while poor fuglies like Mitch and Ted get lampooned just because they resemble turtles or vampires. Hate on them for their irrational policy positions, people, not their looks. It's been said that one of our greatest presidents, Honest Abe, would not have been elected if more voters had seen how ugly the man was. Thankfully, far more people read his sublime prose than the lines on his, frankly, weird face. He probably wore that big hat to distract attention from his mug. Lincoln was so ugly that he made fun of his own looks, once reportedly rhetorically asking "If that if he was a two-faced politician, why would he have the one he was wearing? But Robert Wright says, I can hear critics of the Mandalorian politician's bellow, how can we tell if a politician is lying or not if we cannot see his or her face? Well... Everyone saw Andrew's face when he was lying about his COVID policy record, but only a few sounded the alarm at first. In case you've been living under a rock on Navarro, that's, uh, here's the latest on that quickly escalating scandal. Andrew Cuomo was caught only because he lied about something that many people care passionately about, the lives of their loved ones. Politicians lie about less salient issues all the time, he says. That's why we need a faster, more stringent Freedom of Information Act system and why we're all sickened by the demise of unbiased investigative journalism like the New York Times used to publish. Wouldn't it be great if politicians didn't lie to their constituents or impose costs on them that they don't suffer themselves? Well, he says, see, this is where the Mandalorian Code comes in. Andrew would already be out of the guild, In fact, all of the lockdown governors would be gone because this is the way. Mandalorians like Omar, Devin, Little in The Wire have a known set of rules that they live by or else. To some extent, the code or the content of the code rather is immaterial. What matters is that there is a clear known set of rules that members of the group follow with significant repercussions if they do not. That makes interacting with members of the group more predictable and hence less dangerous, even if the code justifies violence. When it comes to political leadership, clearly some codes are better than others. Omar only robbed drug dealers and would never put his gun on a civilian not in the drug game. And Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, would have to try to return Baby Yoda to his people, even if he wasn't an adorable little critter with mysterious powers. Americans, though, probably want a less lethal code for their politicians. What you learned in kindergarten would be a good place to start. Don't lie, cheat, or steal. Be kind to others and clean up your own messes, or better yet, don't make messes to begin with by implementing policies, the outcomes of which cannot be predicted and may not be known for years or decades. Looking at you, lockdowners. Robert E. Wright says, if only some brilliant people had laid down a more specific code. Oh, wait. He says, I've heard tell of some dusty parchments, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution and state constitutions and the Federalist Papers that establish a code and explain it in quite a bit of detail for those who purport not to understand. The problem with America's constitutional code is that it isn't it really isn't self-enforcing. He says it may be a stretch to say that politicians can break the code with impunity, but the fact that they even float long since exploded ideas like making D.C. a state is... Well, it's embarrassing as breaking the Sunday morning truce that Baltimore drug dealers reputedly maintained for decades. He says this country has a lot of problems right now, so it would be nice to know that a code renders some possibilities off the table. So lawmakers and the public can concentrate on constructive rather than destructive solutions. If politicians cannot follow a code on their own, they are more unpredictably dangerous than any drug robber or Mandalorian following a strict code with consequences. And Robert E. Wright says the American people need to find a way to impose a binding code on politicians because this is the way to a more prosperous future for all. He's right. And not just because he got a lot of cool pop culture references in there. Those were cool, too. But but He's right. Where does that accountability come from? And I don't I, I, I'm not offering, you know, a comprehensive solution here other than, first of all, be really wary. Anytime politicians step up and say, hey, you know, I've got the solution to whatever's ailing you. Of course, they're going to have the solution. All it's going to require is a little more power and a little more money, maybe a lot more money. I mean, who wouldn't want to help, especially when you have power at stake and, you know, you have other people's money to put to work. But are they really operating in your interest? This is the thing that, that gets me about, uh, you know, looking at what's been happening in, in Washington, D.C. In fact, we're going to talk about this actually coming up in the next segment. We'll talk a little bit about the uh, the January 6th armed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. You've heard the stories, right? I'm sure you have. You've heard the claims. Oh, yes, this uh, Trump crazed mob went in there and killed This police officer, in fact, the way that this is reported now, seven people have died in connection with events on January 6th, the uh, January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. That is calculated to make it sound like, oh, my gosh, they went in there and they just started dragging people out and shooting them right then and there. Nothing like that happened. The only person who was shot was Ashley Babbitt, who was shot by a Capitol police officer, not by a rioter, as she attempted to crawl into a window. Everybody else died of heart attacks and strokes, and there's still no definitive cause of death listed for Brian Sicknick, the Capitol Police officer that we were told for weeks was beaten to death by Trump supporters, who, one of whom threw a fire extinguisher at his head. Now, you understand, I'm not trying to say that, therefore, what everybody did at the Capitol was the right thing. No, that was an angry mob, and they were acting like a mob. But why pretend that it's something so much worse than it actually was? What purpose could that serve on the part of either the political class or perhaps even some of their allies in the mass media? Well, I'm glad you asked, or I'm glad you let me presume that you're asking. We're going to ask that question, we're going to answer it with a little help from Jacob Hornberger, just the other side of these messages.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the
1: show. Just a quick shout out to uh, Rio del Sion Home Lots. They are available just outside of Zion National Park along the Virgin River. And if you are moving to Utah, I know a lot of people are, so I'm just going to take a chance and put this out there. If you or somebody you know is moving to Utah, particularly if you are moving to southern Utah and are planning on building a home, you should probably take a look at these lots before they are gone. They are seriously in one of the most beautiful places on earth. Um, I kick myself. For all the years that I lived in southern Utah, I did not go to Zion National Park nearly as often as I should have. People would come to town and I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, we can go see Zion. Oh, we can do that. And we'd take them and they'd be, you know, just blown away. And I would, too. Of course, I'd be looking around going, wow, we should really come here more often. But, you know, when you're close, you think, oh, we'll take it for granted. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent here. But bottom line is what an incredibly beautiful place. If you want to know more about Rio del Sion home lots? You could just go to my show notes at the com, right there under the sponsors. I would encourage you to take a look at them. Let them know that uh, their advertising message reached your ears. And by the way, if you do build a house, if on the wild chance that somebody within earshot is uh, you know, going to make that move, you look at it, you end up building a home there, I expect you to uh, send me photos or at least let me know, you know when you have it done. Heck, I'll even bring you a housewarming gift. Because I think it would be a really cool place to, to check out. All right. January 6th. Hey, did you hear something happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th? I don't know. Maybe maybe you caught some news about that. Okay, it's been hyped as an armed insurrection over and over and over. The big lie just is repeated the same talking points. And look, I don't know how to say this without sounding like are you accusing the uh, media of lying? I'm definitely accusing many within the media of reporting in a very incomplete fashion. So there I've left them an out if they want to you know if they want to have an attack of conscience and fill in some of the blanks maybe maybe they could. But otherwise, yeah. Yeah, it's it's been ridiculous. In fact, Jacob Hornberger just starts by asking the question, what insurrection? Here's an article he had published on the foundation, I'm sorry, the Future of Freedom Foundation fff.org. He says somebody still needs to get a memo to the Justice Department about the so-called insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th because it has yet to charge anyone with that offense. He says all I see is a range of criminal offenses like disorderly conduct, assault, trespass, illegal gun possession and conspiracy to commit these types of crimes. And also a question, how come nobody ever accuses the Justice Department of being a conspiracy theorist given the countless times it charges people with conspiracy? Yet, all we hear from the mainstream mainstream press and the liberal, in other words, establishment, progressive leftist socialist establishment, is that the protesters were hell-bent on taking control of Congress. Now, Jacob Hornberger asks, how can anyone really buy into this nonsense? Especially when the Justice Department and its grand juries aren't. It's like these people live in an alternative universe in which they convince themselves of a false reality and then reinforce it to each other. By now, we are all accustomed to what happens when someone wants to kill people. He takes a high-powered rifle or handgun and starts shooting people. Columbine comes to mind. So does Las Vegas. But there are many other examples. That's what people who were hell-bent on taking control over the Capitol would have done. They would have gone into the Capitol and begun shooting and killing people, and they didn't do that. At most, they did what the Justice Department is accusing them of doing, committing disorderly conduct, trespass, assault, etc. Now, Jacob Hornberger says, Let's assume the worst and imagine that the trespassers had entered the Capitol and begun shooting people with the aim of taking over the Capitol. Despite the manifest fears expressed by the mainstream press and the liberal establishment, there was there's zero chance they would have succeeded in their ultimate aim. The capital would have been surrounded by FBI officers and National Guard troops. There might have been negotiations for surrender. There might have been a siege in which the malefactors were denied food and water. But the final outcome would never have been in doubt. If the marauders refused to surrender, law enforcement officials and National Guard troops would have stormed the capital and retaken control of it. Protesters who survived would have been charged with such crimes as insurrection, kidnapping and murder. A much more interesting and different situation, however, would have occurred if President Trump had orchestrated a violent and deadly takeover of the Capitol with the expressed aim of remaining in power as president. Now, in that case, you would have had what many people in the mainstream press and liberal establishment were fearing in the run up to inauguration day a situation in which Trump was refusing to give up the reins of power and, in the process, orchestrating the violent takeover of the Capitol by his supporters. Then what? Well, that possibility was undoubtedly the reason the Pentagon decided to issue its public declaration that Joe Biden was going to be the new president of the United States. The Pentagon's statement was essentially a declaration to Donald Trump. Don't even think about it. But what if Trump had ignored the Pentagon's pronouncement? And proceeded to remain in power and have his supporters violently take over Congress. How could law enforcement officials and National Guard troops act to remove the marauders from Congress without lawful orders to proceed, especially when their commander in chief was ordering them to cease and desist? Well, to understand what then would have happened, we can turn to what occurred on 9-11 in 1973 in Chile. The national security branch of the government was insisting that the president of the country, Salvador Allende, step down in the middle of his turn. Term, rather. Allende refused and a war broke out between two branches of the national government, the executive branch and the national security branch. The national security branch surrounded Allende's position at the national palace with tanks and infantry and began firing at his position. Air Force jets fired missiles into the palace with the intent on killing Allende. For his part, Allende, who was wearing a military helmet and firing a high-powered rifle, valiantly fought back along with some loyal aides, but they never had a chance against the overwhelming power of the military intelligence branch. When the war was over, Allende was dead. Many of his aides were captured, imprisoned, tortured, and reeducated. As we know now... That Chilean coup was instigated and supported by the U.S. National Security Establishment. In fact, when the overall commander of Chile's armed forces, General Rene Schneider, stood in opposition to the coup because of his duty to support and defend the Chilean Constitution, U.S. National Security State officials conspired to have him violently kidnapped to remove him as an obstacle to the coup. Schneider was shot and killed during that kidnapping attempt. Thus, what happened to Allende is precisely what would have happened if Trump had decided to remain in office and have his supporters take violent control over the Capitol. The message that the Joint Chiefs of Staff were delivering to Trump with their proclamation that Biden was now the new official president was that Trump, if he decided to remain in power, was going to meet the same fate Allende met at the hands of the Chilean military intelligence establishment. In other words... If Trump had chosen to remain in power as his critics feared, he would. The Pentagon would have ordered tanks and infantry to surround the White House and begun firing on the president's position, just like what happened in Chile. Air Force jets would have begun firing missiles into Trump's position in the White House, and while Trump and his supporters would have tried to fight back, they never would have had a chance any more than Allende did. The overwhelming power of a national security establishment makes it the ultimate decider of who is going to be in power. Now he says, maybe Trump never seriously considered it as his critics feared. But if he did, he was smart to see the handwriting on the wall and not to try it at the end of the war. He would have lost just like Allende did. And those who supported Trump and who survived would have then been charged with insurrection. I thought that was a pretty interesting historical lesson as well as a, I thought, a fair accounting of of what took place. I know the political class right now, and this includes a lot of Republicans as well as Democrats, are very, very threatened. You can see that in their attempts to clamp down and to, to exert as much authority and as much power as they possibly can. You can see it, I think that the most the most blatant example of how threatened they are is that you're not allowed to question you can't even question the narrative. That's like it's almost it's on the verge of being criminalized. You can't talk about there being questions about whether the election was on the up and up or what happened on the sixth at the capitol, whether everybody's lives were in danger. And to me, that's a huge warning sign that, okay, if you have to silence people, if if the truth cannot welcome questions and it can't welcome examination. You've got to ask yourself, are we really dealing with the truth here? Falsehood gets defensive like that. But I don't think of the truth as needing, you know, that much protection to where we've got to silence people. We've got to figuratively take their tongues out of their heads so that they don't talk about things that might cause people to think of this in some way other than what we want them to think of it. And they would tell you I'm paranoid for pointing that out. Seems kind of ironic. Stick around. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome
1: back to the show. Uh, I, I like to leave... Uh, a little bit of time for, for hopefully a message that will, will give you a little bit of, uh, well, food for thought in terms of what can you do. I know I'm not the only person who, who sometimes when I sit back and I assess all the stuff that's going on. And I, I, I got to be honest, I don't spend as much time on media as I once did. In fact, I kind of strictly limit uh, how much... Research I'm doing or show prep I'm doing on a day to day basis. You can probably tell, right? I've slacked way off. No, I just I don't want to get too immersed in the news media because when I do. It leaves me feeling powerless, a little bit hopeless, angry, frustrated, um, you know, just just sad at what I see happening around me. I know I'm not the only one who feels this way, but um, but I'm just going to be honest with you. It's 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 an act of liberation to unplug from that media, even if it's just, you know, to spend less time on it on a daily basis or uh, had a friend who just she just did a week long uh, media fast. And uh, I trust that it went well. I was very complimented, by the way, when uh, when I learned that coming back from her media fast. Okay, let's find out what's going on. This was one of the first places she turned. Let's go to Brian's show and see what's happening. So. Christy, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for, for first of all, doing the media fast, but also for turning to uh, this program to get an idea. I think that uh, with everything that's out of our control, particularly all the political stuff, one of the smartest moves that we can make is to learn to distinguish between those things that we have control over and those things that we don't. When you do this, for some people, it comes as a little bit of a shock when you realize how much we may have been obsessing over stuff that, you know, it's, it's at the top of the news headlines. It's, it's always right there, front of mind. But in reality, has very little to do with us, except as we assign importance to it. One of the things that I am learning is that uh, in, in times like this, we are being given a great opportunity to, to improve ourselves. And I'm not saying this because, you know, I'm speaking from the wisdom of a, you know, 100% improved man. I was, I'm just going to tell you, I'm a work in progress, but I'm a huge believer in what Albert J. Nock referred to as, as one improved unit. And he was talking about it in the context of, you know, how do you make a society better? He understood. This is the, this is the guy who wrote the essay, Our Enemy, The State. He understood you don't make a society better, you don't make a community better by some top-down authoritarian or totalitarian means. That There, you will be better. I've signed the decree, now make it so. Instead, it comes. it comes about as the product of numbers of people, starting at the individual level, making the decision to offer one improved unit to society. That means you, yourself. You are the one who is stepping forward and saying, I'm going to be a better person. So with this in mind, I wanted to share with you a gem of an essay from Annie Holmquist, recognizing three elements of true learning. Now, she's she talks about this first from the from the viewpoint of a a mother. She says a smile came to my face as I drove past a school this morning. No longer was it a desolate ghost town. Instead, I had to navigate a long line of cars and buses waiting to turn into into the parking lot to drop children off. And while it's good to see kids going back to school, she says, I can't help but wonder what kinds of things those little ones will learn as they sit in class. How can parents who faithfully bring their children to school recognize whether a child is being educated and working toward becoming a successful adult or is simply being steadily propagandized instead? She says that's a question every parent should ask to evaluate the kind of school their child is enrolled in whether that be public, private, virtual, or home. Unfortunately, the concept of a good education is often distorted these days, so we have no clue what the signs of true learning are. And it's in this area, she says, David Hicks, norms and nobility, comes to the rescue. As classical education expert Martin Cawthorne says, Hicks' advice won't go over well at your local teacher's college, but that's actually a point in its favor. Here are three markers by which parents can evaluate whether their child is experiencing true learning. Number one, well-mannered. She says, learning is not measured in the numbers of de- number of degrees one has, Hicks explains, Hicks explains, rather, nor is it measured in the skills one has learned. Rather, true learning is revealed in character. Said character manifests itself in good manners, Hicks goes on to say, a student who's the product of true learning will know how to behave appropriately and correctly in the circumstances he encounters. He'll exhibit patience and be good-humored, and when good humor deserts the educated man, his good manners will sustain him. So, Annie Holmquist says, Ask yourself, is the education your child is receiving training him to be well-mannered? Can he delay gratification or put others first? If he is learning to make himself preeminent, his desires, his needs, his identity, then perhaps it's time for an educational adjustment. Number two, avoiding arrogance. The educated man, Hicks writes is never aggressive in his behavior or arrogant in his mood. These are the marks of an ignoramus or of the modern student with a talent for faking it. Now, praise and recognition of a child's achievements are good and necessary things. But Annie Holmquist says, however, they must be carefully balanced with training in virtue. Otherwise, the child will become an unbearable know-it-all. A child who is the product of true learning will be confident in his abilities, recognizing those who helped him reach reach such levels and not flaunting his knowledge and talents in boastful ways. Number three, pursuing truth. She says it's popular in today's world to blaze one's own trail and to create one's, one's own truth, a truth often based on feelings or emotions. This tack, however, is the opposite of true learning. For, as Hicks writes, true learning knows what is good, serves it above self, reproduces it, and recognizes that in knowledge lies this responsibility. In essence, true learning trains children not only to know truth, but to put it into practice in their daily lives and their interactions with others. Time away from the regular mode of education gives us all a chance to step back and view the schools our children attend with fresh eyes. Does the education they offer put your child on the path of true learning Or does it leave much to be desired? If the latter, will we overlook it and go with the flow out of convenience? Or will we make the sacrifices required to ensure our children grow up to be well-rounded, well-educated adults who become lifelong learners? That's a fair question, wouldn't you say? I'll have a link to this as well as the other stories that I've shared with you in today's show notes at thebrianhide.show.com. And I, I know I keep referencing Albert J. Nock. If you haven't ever, you know, searched up this guy's. Now, I almost said Googled, but I'm, I'm trying to break that habit. If you haven't searched him up, it's worth spending some time getting acquainted with, with this guy who was very suspicious of government. And I don't mean in a conspiracy theory way. I mean, he just had a good historical understanding of what tends to drive human nature, Including that lust for power, that, uh, that seeking opportunity and trying to get more control over the people and, and processes around you. If you read about his uh, One Improved Unit, I, I still think Isaiah's job is possibly one of the, the best essays that I have read. Albert J. Nock, just, he had great understanding that uh, you know when it comes to solutions, mass solutions more often than not are going to fail and and I don't mean to to this is not to denigrate everybody who disagrees with me well you're just a bunch of sheep no it's just that mass movements are very easily co-opted i don't know if you can remember what happened to the uh tea party movement back in uh, late t- what, t- 2009 2010 right there were people who were were Fired up about we want responsive government, we want, you know, limited government, we want uh, taxes to be lessened and to be responsible and there to be accountability. And it, it it grew in popularity. But as soon as it got to a certain size, the political establishment, I don't know how to describe assimilated it like an like an amoeba or like the Borg. I don't know how to describe it. But basically enough uh, establishment Republicans came in and put their arms around the Tea Party. Hey, hey, we hear you. Come with us, Sonny. Why, we'll take care of you. We'll make sure that you get everything you got coming to you. And thus the movement was derailed and rendered ineffective. So here's the solution for how to have impact that cannot be co-opted and cannot be just simply run away with. It starts with the individual. It starts with somebody who prizes truth above simple political belief, who's willing to change their point of view as they encounter new truth, who can put it to work in their life. This is like what Annie was talking about in her article. That's what it takes. Individuals who do that have impact on the other individuals around them. They show by the power of example and draw after them by the power of example. Other people who value truth. I know, the masses in the meantime, well, they're chasing whatever latest fad, you know, has their attention. Don't waste your time on them. Invest it in you. Become the better person and be that light to the people around you.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.